We are quickly drawing to close the story of Abraham. We're going to look at a very important story today. We're not going to look at the whole chapter of Genesis 24, but I encourage you to go home and read it. Uh, We're going to focus on that which involves Abraham specifically. It's his story, uh, not Isaac's per se. But it is a beautiful story. It's been called a a short story, not denying its truth, but the beauty of the literature itself and the way it's expressed. It's very powerful. But we need to understand what it has to say to us today. So I I open with something that anybody who has ever been a parent has dealt with. A child. Your child comes up to you with arms outstretched. They want to be picked up, want to be held. And it's a beautiful moment for a parent, isn't it? Don't, if you can remember back when your kids were little, you absolutely loved them coming to you. Uh, even if they might be a little bit messy with a chocolate candy bar, lifting up their hands. Holding that child can bring both joy and actually a little bit of fear. I still remember the first time I held my child after she was born, and all sorts of thoughts were going through my head. I'm wondering, will I be able to give my child all that she needs to have a meaningful life? I've shared with you, I actually did pray, God, please help me not to cause my child to go into therapy later. (laughs) Help me to do a good job of parenting. It's one of those questions parents must face. Can I give this child the best? Can I give this child what they need? And so, what a healthy parent... I realize there are people out there who are not healthy parents, who do not have a good relationship with their child. But when a parent is seeking to do the best they can, what do they want? Well, to put it as simply as possible, they want only the best for their child. They want them to grow up in a family where there's love. They want them to grow up in a a world about them where there is a strong sense of belonging and community. They want them to be able to to know trust and hope and life, to have the necessities of life give them. But what does that mean? Particularly for parents who have faith. Billy Graham once said, children will invariably talk, eat, walk, think, respond, and act like their parents. Give them a target to shoot at. Give them a goal to work toward. Give them a pattern that they can see clearly, and you give them something that gold and silver cannot buy. Wanting only the best for those of us who have faith should obviously include instilling in that child a desire to follow the Lord faithfully. But this isn't just something we want for our children. It's what Abraham wanted for his child as well. Abraham wanted only the best. And chapter 24 is setting the stage where Abraham is setting out to accomplish that, to help Isaac have the very best he can have in a bride, 
to begin a lifelong journey of honoring God. So we're going to take a look at the passage. And again, it's a beautiful passage. We'll be looking at the first nine verses. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard this morning, and I will explain why in just a few minutes. But if you would stand as we hear the word of God together. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who was in charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heavens and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel ahead of you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. And do not only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of the master, his master Abraham and swore to him concerning the matter. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Abraham charged his servant to go back to the patriarch's home. And he's talking about Haran. And he wants him to go back and find a wife for Isaac. Now in our culture, the idea of a parent choosing a mate for his child is deemed ludicrous. I once asked Jessica, so I'm your father and it's my job to pick your husband. And she looked at me and laughed. And I did too. It might seem strange to us, but it was a normal practice in the days of Abraham and actually throughout much of world history, even into the 20th century. And in some places, it's still happening. What we see in Abraham's actions is a heart that wanted the best for his child. I want you to have him to have a wife that will grow with him in their walk together. Now, beyond choosing your child's mate, which I'm pretty certain I can say with authority that no one here has done that, this passage has an absolutely important principle for us to understand. This isn't just a beautiful story about how Isaac and Rebekah come together and begin the journey of faith together as Abraham and Sarah had. This is a story that speaks to our needs and our hearts. 
In the actions of Abraham, we can learn a crucial truth, a a principle of highest degree. And that principle is, we must not settle for conforming to this world. We must not shape our lives by the worldview that is surrounding us. Now, Paul made a statement once to the Corinthians. It sounds like he's denying what I just said. He says, To the Jews I became a Jew, so I might gain Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, so that I may gain those who are under the law. To those who were without the law, I became as one without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might gain those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak that I might gain the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by all means win some. Win some. It's First Corinthians chapter 9, 19-22. Danny, you just said we can't conform and Paul said he does just that. I become all things to all people, but it's very important that you understand, it's been pointed out by Craig Blomberg, Blomberg, uh, that this is not a question of saying, I'm going to compromise the roots of the gospel. When you look at it, Paul is saying, I'm going to become a Jew so I can reach a Jew. What did he mean by that? When I'm meeting together with Jews, For a fellowship to talk about Jesus, I'm not going to give them a ham sandwich. I'm not going to give them meat that is full of blood. I'm not going to break the social taboos that will cause them to shut their ears to me. When I come to the Gentiles, I'm not going to say, okay, before I start talking to you, we need to get you circumcised. And he's not going to say to the weak, most likely the weak who believe eating meat offered to idols is sinful. He says, I'm not going to give them a roast beef sandwich that was sacrificed to Dionysus. Paul is saying on the issues of culture that do not affect the bedrock truth of the gospel, I am willing to bend. But I will not compromise my faith. He says, I am following God's law, the law of Christ. I'm not living a life of decadent sin. And you can't read Paul's writings without coming across a clear understanding that he took the call to morality and holiness very seriously. So what's wrong with trying to fit in? Don't we spend much of our life trying to fit in? Folks, I had a sky blue leisure suit in the 70s. I wore platform shoes. It's nice to have two extra inches of height. My my youth shirt for youth choir, if I get down to where I can, and that's part of my aim is get down to that stuff, I'll wear it up here one Sunday. Our youth choir. My shirt was chartreuse. 
my pants white, the lapel almost reached my shoulder, it was cut down to here and we wore white dickies underneath it. Aren't you just praying now, let him get to that weight, I want to see that. I will, I will warn you, when I was dating Rachel, I didn't wear the dickie because I was quite prairie out of my 70s hairy chest. Folks, we want to fit in. We find cliques. We find people who are like us. We want to fit in. So what's wrong with it? Well, when we take a look at our text, this principle, we're going to discover some very important realities that will show us when we conform to the world system, the worldview, it will be detrimental to our faith, our walk with God. So let's begin. Conforming to the world runs contrary to God's covenant. When I make a decision I want to be just like the world, I am saying I do not want to walk under God's covenant and his directions. I am moving completely contrary to my father's will. And when we look at Abraham and what he's telling this servant. Now, we don't know his name. Some people believe he is Eliezer, but you need to understand. If it were Eliezer, Eliezer is nearly as old as Abraham. And when the scripture says that this servant was the oldest of Abraham's Servants, it does not necessarily mean chronological age. Talking about the eldest or the firstborn sometimes carries with it the idea of the person who has authority. He was the chief servant. And everything that Abraham told to his servant was built on the assurance that God was going to keep his covenant. I'm telling you this because the Lord God has covenanted with me and made promises. And I want to remain true and I want my son to remain true. You see, Abraham knew his life was drawing to an end. And he knew the promise wasn't just given to him, was it? It was also given to his descendants after him. So he knows that the son of promise, Isaac, is about to come to the forefront of God's purpose. He will now be the one who stands as the patriarch of the clan. So Abraham, trusting that God would keep his promises, put a plan in motion to find Isaac a suitable bride to produce the heirs of the promise. So he informs his eldest, go back to Haran and find a bride for my son. And he says, from the relatives that I left behind. I believe this was a moment of joy for Abraham. He knows God has promised, God will keep his word, and now we need to get the next phase going. Because I'm about to leave this world. Folks, you and I need to understand The new covenant we walk in as followers of Christ calls to us a very new way of life. We are different. We are told by Paul to the Corinthians, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, all 
old things have passed away, all things have become new. When we received salvation in Jesus Christ, it was not just fire insurance. Folks, by saying, yes, Lord, you didn't get your ticket punched, so you just get out of hell. It's so much more than that. The salvation that came was a promise that God was going to be moving in our lives to bring us where we could be, to bring us where we should be, to change us, to transform us. To make us something important. Salt and light in this world. That salvation was meant to change us. So that through the power of the gospel. We could bring about change in this world. And that truth is crucial for us. We are called to walk differently in this world. And so... We need to embrace God's truth that we are to conform to the image of Christ alone. Whatever other goals we have in our life, this has got to be primary. Make me into the man I am meant to be. Ladies, make you pray to God, make me into the woman you have redeemed and created me to be. This is our purpose. Now, the commitment that is needed there, we've already read about in our responsive reading, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the ruining of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. But Paul doesn't say what happens when our mind is transformed. What is it going to be transformed to? Well, I think Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit, did a little bit what my literature teachers called foreshadowing. Because earlier in the book of Romans, he gives us a vision of what the change in our life is all about. In Romans 8.29, he wrote, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. What will the transformation of our mind mean for us? We will begin to be more like Jesus. That's our goal. That's our life. Thomas Akempis wrote a book, Centuries of Gold, The Imitation of Christ. Other ideas, other books have been written along the same thing, that our lives are supposed to be mirroring Jesus. This is the purpose of our salvation, that we fully embrace it, committing all that we are to the Lord Jesus. Because if I am becoming more like Jesus All those other issues begin to fall in place. I will be talking about the kingdom of God. I will be seeking to live a life that could be called holy. I will be seeking to love my neighbor as myself and to love my enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you. If I'm becoming more like my Savior. This is why we are called 
this transformation. And if we live contrary to the purpose of God's will, if we are not ordering our lives by what God has said, this is who you are to be, it will surely have a negative impact on our lives. And it will cause us a lack of commitment. You see, the second reality about conforming, being just like the world, fitting in, we need to know this. Take a look at that again. He predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. Are we becoming more like Jesus? And if we are not, conforming to the world ignores the provision of God to accomplish his will. If I'm not really committed to following the will of God, if I'm not willing to truly follow what he wants me to be, then I'm not going to be all that concerned about doing what he wants me to do. When the servant says, yeah, what if she doesn't come? Abraham gives an answer. Abraham was convinced he has seen God's hand provide for everything he has promised and brought Abraham to at this point. So Abraham assured his servant that God would send his angel to guide the journey to find Isaac a wife. Now when the servant asks the question, but what if she doesn't want to come back? Should I then bring Isaac back to Haran to meet her? He was actually being prudent. He was actually maybe showing the wisdom that caused him to become the chief of Abraham's servants. You see, even though arranged marriages were the norm in many cultures, the bride had to give some form of consent. It wasn't always, this is who you're going to marry and tough. If she really opposed it in many cultures, she wouldn't have to. And the idea that a woman would refuse this request is not implausible, is it? She's being asked to leave everything she has ever known. She is being asked to leave everyone she has ever loved and go marry a man she has never even seen. Ladies, by a show of hands, how many of you in that position when your husband was being chosen for you, how many would have you said, I'm ready to go? Thank you for being honest. It's a plausible idea. And so it's not saying, hey, I don't want to do this. He's saying, look, it may not work the way you want it to. What do I do then? But Abraham reminded his servant that the providence of God would guide the mission. God will send his angel. Now, there are a lot of folks believe that this is again a reference to the angel of the Lord that we've met throughout Abraham's story. That God may actually be saying through Abraham that God will guide you along the way. 
God would bring the steps. So, to help the servant be a little more comfortable, he said, okay, if she doesn't want to come, you don't try to make her. Now, let me address just for a moment this very weird oath. This is not a common oath practice. And scholars aren't exactly sure what it means. Abraham says, come here, put your hand under my thigh and give an oath to God. Did that sound weird to any of you? Sounds really weird, doesn't it? Put your hand under my thigh. And one of the general consensus uh, that you can hear is it may have something to do with the idea of progeny, saying, look, I'm making an oath to you and the children who will follow you, with the thigh being very close to the place where life is launched. And this is what I want you to do. And, the, and when Abraham said, if she won't come, you don't have to, the servant says, okay, I understand. And he places his hand under the thigh and takes the oath. Now, what is this? Again, how do, how do we fit in here? Simply, God is moving within our lives to enable us to fulfill his will in us. God moves in our lives. We have the goal, we have the aim of walking in the kingdom, becoming like Jesus. And God says all along the way, I am going to move in your life. I am going to bring you to the place you can be. In Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6, which is our theme passage for the study on uh, uh, spiritual formation, which will continue tonight at 5 o'clock. Uh, Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6 says, The word came that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel, but the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel as has pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Am I not able, house of Israel, to deal with you as this potter does? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. God shapes his people. God molds his people. God makes us into what we can be. And it's in his process as we yield ourselves to his chain. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul wrote, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bring you to that place of sanctification. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, we desperately need to know that God has not left us on our own to do the best you can. To do the best you can. In your workaday life, have you ever been given a job and just said, here, do this, but with no real direction on how to get it done. Uh, 
I used to work, I worked 11 years in retail, and I remember when I became a department manager, I absolutely loved setting up counters. It was fun. But I was once given a, a massive counter, and they said, okay, here's a piece of paper, do it. Only the peg holes on the piece of paper were not like the peg holes on the board. I said, well, how do I do it? It doesn't fit anymore. I said, you'll figure it out. I was 18. I finally did figure it out. I wasn't singing Jesus songs while doing it, but I finally figured it out. God is actively moving in the circumstances of our life to bring us beyond where we are to where we can be. And we need to open our hearts to him. Quit fighting his purpose. So you and I, we need to embrace the truth that God will supply all we need to live as his children in this world. And this is just not my interpretation of some verses. Within his word, God himself specifically promised us this. 2 Peter 1.3 reads, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. His power has been granted to us so that we can become what we are meant to be. Will we do it 100%? Yeah, all the time? No, we'll stumble, we'll fall. But he's moving and he gives us the tools and we can be making progress that will honor him. You see, Abraham believed the promises of God. He is staking the whole future of his descendants on the fact that God has promised. And he told this man, if she doesn't want to come, you're not bound. But believing the providence of God, Abraham believes she would come. He's calming the servant down, but in his own heart he knows what God's going to do. So if we conform to this world, and Romans 12.1 suggests we can, do not be conformed. It will not cause God to withdraw his love from us. It will not cause him to remove us from the covenant that he has made, but it will affect our fellowship with him. It will affect the way we respond to him and we experience him. And our last reality reminds us conforming to the world will cause us to lose sense of our identity. What is really happening here? Why this elaborate plan to get a bride for his wife? There were plenty of women in Canaan. So why does he go? You're going to have to go all the way back to her hand. You're going to have to look and find the woman and bring her back. Well, from a human point of view, Abraham knew the dangers to his son if the compromise were to take place. 
Now, there are some people who look at this text and say that Abraham had a, a, a superiority complex, that I'm better than the people of Canaan. They, they feel that it is a, a, a disrespect of the ethnicity of the Canaans, that it is actually a form of racism. Paul Kissling has pointed out that race and ethnicity are not the true problem. <clears throat> Did you know that under the law, the Mosaic law, a Jew could wed a Canaanite, a pagan, a Gentile, if they converted to faith. Abraham himself was married to a woman of Cush. And when Miriam and Aaron chided him about it, God gave Miriam leprosy. And Moses had to pray for his sister. So there was a possibility of a Gentile marrying. And without a doubt, the first readers of Genesis knew the text of the law that said, you do not need to intermarry with these people. And the truth is, when Israel did intermarry without requiring conversion, it introduced idolatry into the land of Israel. This is not a sense of ethnic superiority or animosity. God knew, and Abraham knows, if Isaac marries one of these Canaanite women, he may be lured to follow her religion, which was a religion of fertility. So he said... Do not get her a bri- him a bride that could possibly lead him away from God. And that Abraham wanted a bride from his own people is again not an issue of pride. And the just further down in this text, during the search for the bride, we find out that some of his relatives actually knew the Lord. Genesis 24.50 says, And Laban and Bethuel replied, The matter has come from the Lord. And they use the name Yahweh. So we cannot speak to you bad or good to you. Now, they most likely were not following Yahweh exclusively. They did not have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. But nevertheless, they knew that Abraham was serving the true God. So asking someone who knew that to come back is not hard to see them embracing the worship of Yahweh alone. Abraham also did not want Isaac to go back to Haran. That place, that life was no longer to be a part of the chosen's life. I believe, Angel, did you read from the NIV? Yes. In the NIV, when When the servant says, if she won't come, do I bring him to her? And NIV translates, make certain that you don't take him to Canaan. And that's saying, no, don't do that. But the thrust of the original language is a little bit more stern. And so the New American Standard does a great translation. Beware that you don't. 
Do you catch the, the suggested threat in that? You take him back and you're in trouble. And he doesn't just say, don't take him back once, does he? He says, don't take them back twice. The second one, a little bit more gently. Why doesn't he want Isaac to go back to Haran? He gives an answer. The Lord God has promised me and my descendants, this is our home. Haran, Ur, everything before Canaan is gone. That's not home anymore. We are here. And Isaac needs to stay here. Being raised in a in a an Air Force home where we moved around quite a lot, I've never known what it means to really have a hometown. I refer to Paris, Texas as my hometown. It's where I went to junior high and high school, my first two years of college. But there is nothing about Paris that truly says, this is my home. My family is all gone. There's nothing that calls me back. And I stay in contact with friends from Paris. And if we have a a high school reunion, and it works out right, I may go back. I've seen pictures of some of them on, on our Facebook page, and they've grown old just like me, so I don't have to worry about that. But that's not my home. Wherever God plants me is my home until God shows me differently. Abraham is saying, I don't want him corrupted by Canaanite fertility gods. I don't want him to lose sight that he belongs in Canaan. Isaac must always remember the covenant of the Lord. And here's where it gets tough, folks. If we conform to the world, we will lose sight for that which we were saved to become. It can happen quickly. It can happen thoroughly. Looking back to the world to guide us is disastrous for the church. When churches struggle and fight. We will never fully gauge the damage that a church fight brings not only to the church but to the community. When we allow ourselves to be divided into cliques, when we allow ourselves to be divided in thinking my way has got to be the way and eventually a fight, a split takes place, that's being like the world. It's not discerning the body of Christ. It's what I want. And if I don't get my way, I'm gone. When we refuse 
and we decide to simply go with the flow and not rock the boat, we refuse just to try to fit in, we can probably never gauge the damage when we cease being salt and light. Christ calls us to be different. Not socially superior, not looking down on the world, but saying my life is in the hands of God first and foremost, and that's going to guide the way I work in this world. I'm going to share with you an event, a situation that broke my heart, and I will confess, angered me, and I had to do a lot of praying. It happened at a Reawaken America event, May 23rd, 2023, not that long ago. I'm not commenting on the event itself. But during the event, I, I listened to uh, some clips of pa- uh, Pastor Mark Burns of the Harvest Praise and Worship Center in South Carolina. He was making reference to Matthew 5.39, which reads, Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. But listen to what he said. The crowd's already pumped up, it's clear. But he says, you got to get to the point where you realize when they smack you in the face. And he pauses. And he says, you smack them back two times harder. And the crowd went wild. He is actually referencing Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. And folks, whatever his intent, he was mocking the words of Jesus. He then went on. And made a reference to Matthew eleven twelve From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. He used a different translation, suggesting that violence was appropriate for children of the living God. When he says, the Bible says, the violent take it, the kingdom, by force, and we take it, he was talking about this land, by force. Well, folks, the New American Standard translation is an excellent translation. The kingdom suffers violence and violent men take it by force. The the NIV could be read, could be interpreted that we're going to have to go out and fight for the kingdom. But that's not what the original text says. And when you look at the book of Matthew, with all of the wonderful things that have been coming through the kingdom, when Jesus shows up toward the end of his life, opposition was growing. Herod had John the Baptist put to death. The Jewish teachers are increasingly opposing Jesus. And the people as a whole are growing more discontent because he's not willing to promote revolution. They want him to get rid of Rome. And he says things like, be a peacemaker. Turn the other cheek. I use humor. 
Now, I use situational humor. I rarely, if ever, tell a joke from the pulpit anyway. And I can understand a pastor's getting carried away and wanting to be a little bit humorous. But folks, if you ever find me mocking the words of Jesus, I invite you to, all of you, to see me after church and have me uh, get to get to meet Jesus rally. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe what I was hearing. Folks, we will never be able to gauge the damage done to the cause of Christ when ministers mock the very words of our Lord for whatever reason. It is not acceptable under any scenario. In the end, we must embrace all that we truly are as children of God. We are called to be people who live lives of holiness, lives that are different, lives that are committed to the purpose of God. We are called to live lives of maturity. We're supposed to be growing up. We're called to live lives of compassion. And we are called to a life of commitment to the very end. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone comes after me, he must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. So what happens when we fail? What happens when we actually conform to this world? Is all hope gone? Is God through with us? Are we standing at the edge of a precipice about to fall into a chasm and there's nothing that can be done? In an article in Prevention Magazine, Dr. Ned Hollowell, a child and adult psychiatrist, wrote, when I was in the first grade, I had trouble reading. Back then, if you had trouble reading, you could easily be dismissed as stupid or you could be ridiculed or even punished. But I was very lucky. I had an experienced teacher named Mrs. Eldridge who knew there was more to a first grader's reading problem than being stupid or lazy. She knew that sooner or later I would start to read and that the most important thing to do for me in the first grade was to make sure I didn't become afraid of reading or start to believe that I was stupid. So during reading period, this sweet old lady would sit down in one of those little chairs and put her arm around me. When it was my turn to read out loud, I could only stammer and stutter as I tried to make out the words. But none of the other children laughed at me because I had the mafia sitting next to me. Mrs. Eldridge Arms saved me, and it has stayed around me ever since, preventing me from contracting what are the most disabling learning problems of all, fear and shame. So here we are standing on the precipice. We realize how much we've compromised. We realize how far we've gone. And it looks as if 
we are too far gone. And in desperation, we hold our arms up in an act of surrender and we call out, please God, forgive me. Help me start anew. What does God do? Does he slap our arms down and say no? He reaches out to us and tells us, I want only the best for you. I only want what is best for you.